let's stand together as we come to the word of God. We're going to read today from Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans chapter five. We're reading from the CSV. So if you have that, you can read from that. If you don't have it in front of you right now, you can look up on uh, the screens and we will read together Romans five, one through five. Let's read. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Today I'm going to speak on the subject. God's setup for your success. God's setup for your success. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks. You speak to us continually in your word. And Lord God, you desire that every ear be opened, every heart uh, made soft, that we may receive your word to us. You speak by your word. You speak through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that in the coming moments you will speak to your church powerfully as only you can. You are God and you are good. Encourage every heart. Point us toward Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God's set up for your success. Now, anyone who's lived a minute or more knows that success is a wonderful thing to aim for, but sometimes it's a difficult thing to achieve. In all kind of different realms of life, success can be a very difficult thing. I, I'll never forget my first day uh, on my college campus, and they were having freshman orientation. It was late August 1876, as I recall, and that's what some of you think. Pastor Larry's old. Not quite that old, y'all, but uh, I remember they, they put us all, all the, the, the freshmen into the auditorium and they were giving speeches and talking to us and trying to scare us. And at one point they said, now look to the person at your right and you look to the right and then look to the person at your left and you look to the left. And they said, now one of those people is not going to be here come next year. And you know what? I don't know about who was on my right and left. I don't remember that. But what I do remember is that a whole lot of people that were with me in my freshman year that I was cool with and growing with weren't there for my sophomore year. Uh, for whatever reason, they, they didn't make it to the next year. It's not easy uh, to make progress and to succeed. I read in Forbes magazine that uh, for new entrepreneurs and new business starts, that 80% of them fail in the first 18 months. Success is not easy to come by. I wish that wasn't true of church plants. I wish we said, oh, they're planting a church, so it's going to grow and succeed and thrive. That doesn't happen automatically. It happens only with great effort and with 
uh, the blowing of the Holy Spirit upon it and with much prayer, it doesn't happen automatically. And you know that in your own life. Success doesn't come without certain things lining up well. And we're going to look at that in this passage. But before we get into the passage, I'll, I'll give you four things that everyone needs to succeed. First of all, you need the right environment. You can start a brand new business, have the best business plan ever, have everything all lined up. If day one, when you open your doors, we have a, a, a stock market crash and we're back into a major depression, your business probably is not going to work. You need the right environment, the right economy to make things work. Secondly, you need the right connections. Try to start a business and not have... Uh, the right connections. You start your business and you need capital to, to build out your infrastructure or to, to get your software and other things together. But if you don't have capital, you don't have a connection to get that cash in, you're in trouble from the get. Now, not only that, you, need, you may need connections depending on what your business is. You need expertise. You need mentors. You may need supply streams. You may need marketing channels. You need all kinds of different connections if you're going to succeed. Not only that, but you need the right perspective. Because no matter what business you're in or no matter what you're trying to accomplish in your life, there are coming times of discouragement. Difficult times not might come, they will come. If you live long enough, difficulty will come. And in that time, you need the right perspective. You need to see, to be able to see past the end of your nose and your current situation. You need to be able to see some hope out there in the future. You need the right perspective. And lastly, you need the right power. Because if all of these other things are lined up, just, it seems like just perfectly aligned. But you don't have the power to get that thing off the ground in the first place. You know, you can have an airplane with just the right aerodynamics, everything perfect in this airplane. But if it doesn't have that engine to move it at a certain speed on that, uh, on, on that runway, it will never get off the ground. You need some power in your environment to get you off the ground. So you need all of these things to line up, and we'll see these things as we go through this passage. So Romans 5 starts the second major portion of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Uh, the first major portion from the middle of chapter 1 after the introduction to the end of chapter 4, he is explaining to a young church the way that God makes us right before him. The $50 theological term is justification or making righteous. He makes us righteous in his sight. And what Paul explains in, in great detail in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is that none of us are made righteous because of any good thing that we'll ever do. Uh, it's not the equation that we sometimes like to work out in life. I know I've messed up, but if I do enough good things, I can, I can earn favor with God. No one earns favor with God that way. And so Paul puts us all on one footing. He, and his worldview, he's saying Jews and Gentiles. That's how his world was broken up. But we could say 
black and white, rich and poor, Hispanic and Asian, uh, educated, uneducated, rural or urban. We could go through all kinds of classifications and say we all stand on even ground at the foot of the cross. And that even ground is that we stand in desperate need of God to work on our behalf. And so the good news that he shares in chapters 3 and 4 is God has indeed done that for us. In the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand now righteous before God, justified because of his grace by believing in Jesus. And so with that, we come uh, to chapter 5. And what Paul is going to show us here in this section is that the work of justification is actually God setting every believer in Christ up to radically succeed in life. You may say, man, it doesn't feel like that to me right now. But look at what God is promising you and showing you in these verses today. So let's go through it. Let's jump in to verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I talked about the fact that we need the right environment. And the right environment is peace with God. The right environment is that God has extended to us a hand of peace. And some people say, well, okay, I know that. Let's get on to some meteor stuff. Tell me, tell me something I don't already know. But if that's your attitude, then I wonder if you really understand what you have when the scripture says that you have peace with God. Because if you go on in this passage in, in verse 6, it's going to tell you that we were ungodly. It's going to tell you in verse 8 that we were sinners. And in verse 10 in this chapter, it's going to tell you that we were enemies of God. When you were outside of the saving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you were a bad sinner or a good sinner or an in-between sinner, whatever that means, whatever kind of sinner you were, the Bible says you were alienated from God and that you were actually his enemy. Some of you say, I wasn't an enemy of God. I, I believed in God. I just didn't know Christ yet. But here's the reality. If you didn't know Christ, even when you did the right thing, you wanted the glory to go to yourself. You were a glory thief then, and some of us need to be careful because that glory thieving runs right into our Christian lives. All glory to God, but just a little bit over here. I did good, didn't I? I just want people to know I did really good, right? So that glory thieving is something we still struggle with. Um, but God says that though you were an enemy, now I've given you my peace. And the way, the way it's, it, it's written in the original Greek, it's in an emphatic position. And so he actually says, peace we have with God. And he makes a big deal out of this peace. Peace in the scriptures is not just a lack of conflict, but it is perfect wholeness. It's tranquility. It is that everything has been aligned perfectly. And God says, that's what you have from me. It's not what you deserve from me, but it's what you have from me. 
I was blessed uh, just a few minutes ago as Brother Eric got up and, and shared uh, the word that God put on his heart. It's his first time sharing in front at Epiphany Fellowship. I'm excited for that. He is a man of God. That's one word, man of God, with a D in there. Man of God. Amen. Love that, brother. Um, but he, he, he's sharing from the word. And, and we need to know. Now, now I, I just want to put out this situation with, with Brother Eric. Now, I love Eric. I've known him for a few years, and, and I've learned to love the brother a lot. But what if I found out that he had ripped me off for five grand? $5,000, I find out. Eric, my friend who smiles in my face and comes in my house and eats my chicken and sits at my table, and Eric, Eric, with a K, Eric, has stolen from me $5,000. And you're like, well, that's okay, because that's Pastor Larry. He's got the Holy Ghost. He loves God. He is Mr. Contemplative Spirituality Guy. He wears his little cross, and he's just going to be all right. I'm going to tell you right now, I'd be kind of hot. If I found out that Eric or any of y'all had stolen $5,000 from me, I just wouldn't be happy. And, and, I'm, and, and in my anger, I might do something bad, possibly. And so let's just uh, put out this scenario where I find out this has happened and I am on my way to confront Eric about this grievous deed that he's done to me. I'm mad, I'm hot, I'm fuming, but on the way to that meeting with him to give him a piece of my mind and then some on my way someone meets me on the way and they say you know you need to let brother Eric go you just need to forgive him I'll be like yeah right you don't know what he took from me you don't know how he stabbed me in the back you don't know how he smiled in my face and stole my money behind my back uh, but they say now hold on just one second I have something for you they pull out of their pocket a hundred thousand dollars a hundred grand, and said, this I want you to know, this should cover whatever it is that Eric did uh, to you. I want you to be kind to him. So I go the rest of the way, and I see Brother Eric. What do you think my disposition is then? I'm like, hey, bro, how you doing, man? You want to get some water ice? Let's get some water ice. Man, if you want to get a gelati, you can get a gelati. You can get anything you want on the menu. Just do whatever. I'd break you off a piece right here, right? So my whole disposition has changed because I've received satisfaction for the debt that he incurred from what he did to me. Well, that is our situation with God. God is the party who was wronged in the first place. Now, God's anger is not unrighteous like mine, but his anger is righteous. And his wrath isn't halfway like I could only do so much. But God's wrath is eternal and will destroy. And his wrath, the Bible says, was on his way to us righteously because of what we have done. And he hurled his wrath, but someone met that wrath along the way. And someone says, wait a second, I have paid for every sin that this one has ever done, that they ever will do, that can ever happen. I've paid it all. And, and that wrath is now peace. And so the Bible says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the right environment, but not only that, we have the right connections. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, we have also obtained access. Say that word, access. We have access through him, through Jesus, by faith 
into this grace in which we stand. That word uh, there for access is a word that was used by the Greeks to talk about the ability to stand in a royal court uh, in front of a king or a queen. You've been granted access. That is not a lowly privilege. That's not a common privilege. That is a special privilege. You've been given access. In one of the earlier services, uh, Sister Tiffany was sharing in the time for reflections, and she talked about Esther uh, having to go before the king uh, at, the, at, at, at the behest of her uncle, actually her cousin Mordecai, and uh, she was told that you need to go into the king's chamber. And the reality with Esther is that she knew the truth that to go in the king's chamber without being asked specifically by the king, the king had the right to kill you immediately, to snuff out your life. And that was the reality of the law. But it, what we see here in this scripture is God has said, I give you total 100% VIP access to me. Not for a minute, not for a day, not for a year, but for the rest of your life on earth. God gives us access to himself. And even the way that it's put in the original Greek text, it's in what's called the perfect tense, but it's called an intensive perfect. What that means is that we have access because of something that's been done in the past, we have access right now, but also in the intensive perfect, it means that that access continues as long as you live. It'll never change. You have access to God. Do you have the right connections? If God ain't the right connection, then you're missing something. God has given us full access to him. Listen, brothers and sisters, our problem is not a problem of access to God. It's a problem of using that access. How do you use the fact that you have access to God? Let me give you uh, an illustration. When I was in school, I was a pretty good student in just about every subject. I was competent. I could pass. I could do fairly well in math and reading and history and in other subjects. But then I came to a particular subject, French. And I was not good in French in high school. I just wasn't good. I didn't apply myself. I know for some of you that's hard to believe because you know I'm fluent now. So I'm extremely good with my French now. And so it's hard to believe. But believe it or not, in high school I struggled in French and I struggled in that class. But here's the funny thing. My, my uh, teacher said, listen, if you're struggling with this class, you can come and see me before school if you need to. You can come after school or there's some different times during the day that you can come and see me. You have access to me. You can come. Guess what? I never, ever did once. I never went to get help from my French teacher because I was a little bit ashamed of just how bad I did. Like he wouldn't know. Right. He's the one who did all this red all over my tests all the time. Right? But I had no problem talking to a geometry teacher, talking to an American history teacher, talking to teachers in other subjects. I enjoyed conversing with them, but in those subjects, I was doing fairly well. I was competent and felt like I could have a conversation and didn't need to be embarrassed. But the place where I needed the most help 
I refused to use the access I had to get it. And the problem is that for many of us, we do that spiritually. God has given you 100% unfiltered access to him every moment of every second of every day of every week of every month of every year for the rest of your life. You have it. He says, come to me anytime. And yet for the things we need him most, we don't. We may say, well, I prayed about it, but have you gotten desperate about it? Have you sought the Lord about it? One question before we go on to the next thing is simply this. Uh, for you to ask yourself, how can I prioritize my time to make sure that I'm taking full advantage of the access that God gives me? What do I need to change about how I spend my time so that I take full advantage of this incredible gift, this connection of access to God. So next, not only do we have the right environment, peace with God, the right connections, access to God, but we also have the right perspective, which is hope in God. Look at the middle of verse 2. In the middle of verse 2, he says, and we rejoice... In the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I, I want you to see something here. Because he doesn't say we rejoice in the manifested glory of God that you can see before your eyes right now. Look at God having finished his work, it's in all its splendor. Look at how beautiful it looks in front of your earthly eyes right now. That's not what he said. He said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the right perspective that we need is a perspective of hoping in God. I hope you know that you need that perspective to hope in God because life can be very, very difficult at times, and we can get thrown off in all kinds of different ways. I remember being uh, a little boy about 11 years old and going out for the Pop Warner football team, the little guy's football team. And uh, I had lived in the big city of 11,000 people, Oneida, New York, for a little while. But then I moved out to the country, into the sticks of the sticks. And so I knew all the guys on the team because I had lived there a few years ago. But when I moved out, for some reason, I felt like well, I can't compete with them because I live out here now. I'm not in the big city environment like they are. Right. So I had this this sense. But I remember my mother drove me to the football tryouts. And we got there. I didn't have any equipment. I didn't have any cleats. I didn't have any helmets. And I saw all these guys running around the field. They had their helmets on. They had their cleats on. They had their shoulder pads on. I had, well, I didn't have nothing on. That would have been really bad. But I didn't have any football equipment on, right? It was 95 degrees, a hot August day. The sun was beaming down. They're running around the field. And they're sweating. And I'm here with my mom, and I don't know if practice had started a week earlier or what it was, but I wasn't prepared, and I just looked at it, and I said to my mom, I don't think I really want to play football. And I walked away from that football field, and that was the end of my football career. If our hospitality people can pass out some tissues right now, that would be, that would be a blessing, right? But 
I remember years later being in high school and football was a big deal in our little town. It was only a population of about 11,000 people, but on a Saturday or a Friday night when there was a football game, you would have 6,000 people sometimes at that little high school football game. There wasn't nothing else to do in Oneida, New York on a Friday night, y'all. So people went to the high school football game, and I remember on the day of the games or the day before games, the players would wear their jerseys in school, and I'd look at them like, man, I could have one of those jerseys. I wish, and they did the pep rallies, and everybody got excited, and the football team went up, and I'm just, I'm clapping, but I'm saying, I could have been up there. Why not me? And I have to ask the, the question, why did I quit? Why did I not go forward? And the answer is because I just looked at what was, what was comfortable to me at the present. I got my eyes off of the potential of some glory in the future, right? And we do the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. We get caught up in right now. And we miss what God has for us because we're caught up in what's comfortable right now. You won't make it very far in Christ if your comfort is your guide. You just won't make it very far. You won't make it far. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now it's about to get deep. Verses, verse 3, Paul says, and not only that, but we rejoice in our afflictions. Stop right there. Are you kidding me? He says not only that, but we rejoice, or you could also translate that word, we boast. We make a big deal out of our afflictions. Who does that for real? Like, man, I'm having an affliction. I want everybody to know. Check out my afflictions, y'all. We don't do that. We don't do that, but what is he getting at? He actually is using a rhetorical device, and we'll see it through verses 3 and 4, where he's building up to something else, but it starts with his afflictions. We boast, he says, in our afflictions. What is afflictions? Afflictions means trouble that inflicts, inflicts distress, oppression, tribulation, hardship, Affliction is difficulty in your life. Affliction is trouble that comes out of nowhere. Affliction uh, are those things that make life hard to get through. And the reality is that whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your disposition before God, you're going to run through afflictions in this life. There's big afflictions and there's little afflictions. In the last two weeks, I've been to three funerals. One of a 15-year-old girl. Those are major, difficult afflictions that people go through. Looking at what's going on in our country right now, wishing that seeing that was an anomaly and we're shocked to see it, but knowing that it's all too common in the attitudes and the realities of the country we live in right now, that's an affliction that people are going through even now. There's little afflictions. I lost my wallet last week. Either I lost it or it was stolen. I don't know. But either way, I don't have the stuff. That's a little affliction. My car wouldn't start this week called AAA. Little affliction, right? But you're going to go through little afflictions and, and moderate uh, difficulties. And then you're going to go through some real trials. And those usually are around relationships and loss and grieving. Uh, those types of things. You are going to go through those things. 
But Paul says, I'm able to boast in those. How? Let's look at how. Again, back to verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our afflictions. Now, here he's going to tell you how. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. He says, we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance means the capacity to hold out or bear up under the face of great difficulty. It means growing in patience, endurance, and steadfastness. So he says, the fact that I have affliction in my life is going to make me a stronger person in the ability to endure and bear up under what is difficult. Affliction, as it were, is, is the weight that's put on the bar in order to make you strong. So if, if God was ever to call me to be a personal trainer, Lord, help the person I train. But if he ever was, I already have my mantra ready for that person. And it's simply this. If you want to get swole, you need more weight on the pole. I'm going to tell you, if you want to build up your muscles, you're, you're lifting your little five pounds 300 times isn't going to build up any muscle. Because to build up a muscle, you have to tear down that muscle. And what happens when you put extra weight on that pole, if, 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 if you're doing curls and you have five pounds, really nothing's happening. You may feel good about yourself. You may even look in the mirror and say, yeah, 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 look at that. That bicep is coming, but nothing's happening, y'all. Don't, don't, don't deceive yourself. God is not mocked. But when you start putting some real weight on that pole, what happens is as you lift that weight, it begins to tear in that muscle. It tears down that muscle so that when you're done with the work of lifting that heavy weight, the muscle now comes back together and repairs itself and is stronger than it ever was before. You're not going to grow physically without putting more weight on that pole. And you're not going to grow in Christ without working through hardship and affliction in a way that honors God. Our problem is that instead of going through that affliction with hope in God, we, we bypass that and we look for comfort in the midst of the affliction. So we go back to our earthly, worldly, often sinful comforts that make us feel better right now. This is an easier way. I can't take it, so let me go back to this little idol that makes me happy for a few minutes. But... As we go on in this scripture, it says that we rejoice in afflictions. We know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character. Proven character is the idea that you've gone all the way through a test, and, you've come, and it's come out positive. You have passed the test. Paul says here that affliction produces endurance, increased strength, by which we are able to go through the test and pass the test. That comes because affliction came in the first place and we're able to pass the test. And then he says, and proven character produces hope. Hope in Christ. Hope in what God has done. Hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul illustrates this actually in chapter 4 through the life of 
Abram, who, who he changes his name to Abraham later. But when God first comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he tells him, he promises him, I am going to make you the father of many nations. Abraham's like, that's cool. I love it. Make me the father of many nations. Eleven years go by. He doesn't even have one kid. He's got a beautiful wife. They're trying to bring God's promises to pass. It's not working. And after 11 years, Sarah says, I'm not sure if Abraham's still the man that he was 11 years ago. Let's help God a little bit. And so she says, uh, Abram, would you like to have my handmaiden uh, Hagar and, and you can have a, a child with her? Do you think that would be OK? Abraham says, I think that's a good idea. I like that. Let's do that. Abraham's very happy to, to check out that, and uh, they do that, and they make an Ishmael. Let me just say to you, whenever we go outside of God's prescribed plan and try to help him by our own means, we make little Ishmaels that will mess us up oftentimes for years or decades to come. And that's what happens with Abram, but it, the story, praise God, it doesn't stop there. We probably all have Ishmaels in our lives but Ishmael is not the end of your life. God comes to Abram again uh, 13 years later. He's 99 years old now. And the Bible says his body was as good as dead. Now, what does that mean? That means that the baby-making capacities of Abram were gone. He, he was not in a position at this point in time to make babies. And Sarah knew it, and Abram knew it, and... God says, now I'm going to change your name. Abram means exalted father. But now I'm going to change your name to Abraham, the father of a multitude. The Bible says in Genesis 17 that Abram laughed when God said that. In chapter 18, it says, when Sarah overheard it from three angels who visited Abram, she laughed. And then she denied that she laughed. So it wasn't received with this great, incredible faith at the moment that it was spoken. But here's what I love that the Bible says. It says that Abram did not waver in unbelief. Look, when you're going through affliction and hardship and when you're fussing and complaining and moaning and wanting to get outside of this hard place and find some comfort and relief elsewhere, the, that, that's not the test, but the test is what is the next thing that you do? Do you waver in unbelief and go for that comfort? Or do you say, you know what? Wait a second. I'm a Christian. God has promised this. I'm going to stay with God and believe him. Listen, God gets you to the very end of yourself. Very often because he wants you to see that what he's going to produce can only come through him. Let, let me say it this way. God waits until you understand that you don't have what it takes to produce what he's asked you to produce, to help you to produce what you couldn't produce, so that when you produce it, all the glory goes to God. I'm going to say that one more time. And put, put that on the board if you can. God waits until you understand that you don't have what it takes to produce what he's asked you to produce, to help you to produce what you couldn't produce, so that when you produce it, all the glory goes to God.
See, God doesn't put up long with glory thieves. And what happens very often in our lives is that we finally have a breakthrough and we say, look at what I did. God says, no, you don't get it yet. You didn't do it. Brothers and sisters, think of your own struggles in life, whatever it may be. One that is so very common is just a struggle for sexual purity. That's, that's a struggle that uh, uh, not only men have, but women have. It's a struggle that we live with many times. And we're looking for a breakthrough. We're looking to get to a place where that's not a struggle anymore. I don't know many people for whom that is true, particularly many guys. I don't know guys for whom they say, I just don't struggle with that at all anymore. Uh, the guys that tell me that, I think they probably struggle with lying. But um, <laughs> the reality is, it's a struggle that, that we have, but he, here, here's the thing. God wants you to see that you can't do it by yourself, that you only make it through and grow in purity by leaning on the finished work of God in your life. And you're going to walk with a limp and you're going to need him to help you every day of your life. You're never going to be able to say, look what I did. Sometimes as I talk with guys, we think that that's the worst thing in our lives. But I want to turn that around and say that is probably the one thing more than anything that God wants you to use in your life to make you depend on him. Because you're not going to make it by yourself. You need help. God wants to produce in you and through you what you can't produce yourself. Let's look at this last piece. Not only the right environment, peace with God, the right connections, access to God, the right perspective, hope in God, but also finally in verse 5, the right power, the abiding presence of God. Verse 5 says, this hope will not disappoint us. He says it cannot disappoint us. It is impossible that the hope that God gives you in Jesus Christ can ever disappoint you. He said that's not a possibility. Why? He says, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Brother or sister, if you're a believer in Christ, if you put your trust in him and given your life to him, then you have all the power that you need to succeed and walk in him and give him glory with your life. Your problem, my problem, is often that we just don't believe that. But when we say that our sin or our difficulty, the relational problem, our financial situation, whatever it may be, when we say that that thing is more than we can handle, what we're saying is the Holy Spirit of God living on the inside of me is not enough. And when we say that, we are wrong. God has poured out his Holy Spirit in your life for every believer. Don't believe a lie that if you don't tarry and speak in tongues or do this or that, that you don't have the Holy Spirit. If Christ is the Lord of your life, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, then you have the power that you need to overcome and honor God with your life. 
God has set you up to succeed. But as I close, we need to talk about what does it mean to succeed? Well, it certainly doesn't mean what the, the way the world defines success. It doesn't mean that we've accumulated more stuff than other people. It doesn't mean that people glorify us more than they glorify other people. It doesn't mean that it can be measured by dollars or measured by degrees. It's not measured by the awards or the recognition that we get in this world. What does it mean to succeed as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm glad you asked because it simply means this. What it means to succeed is that you were faithful to Jesus Christ in the way you lived your life before God and in how you interacted with others. Here's the question. Did you honor God and honor the image of God in those that you interacted with to the degree that we can say yes to those questions? To that degree, your life is a success. So I don't want to leave this on a down note. A lot of people are saying, oh, no, that's bad news, not good news. I got a long way to go. The good news is you're hearing this message today. The good news is God has given you his word. The good news is God has given you access to him. The good news is that the power of the Holy Spirit is available to you now and tomorrow and the next day and the next year. The good news is that God can turn your situation around, whatever it is, as you put your hope and trust in him. Two questions. Number one, what is one change that you can make in your life that will help you to honor God more consistently? Think about that. What is one change I can make so that I honor God in a more consistent way in my life? The second question is this, what is one thing that you can do that will help you to honor those around you as image bearers of God? And some people look at that and say, well, that second question isn't as important as the first one. I would say, oh, yes, it is. Because to the degree that we love and care for those around us, that tells more about how much we actually love God than any confession from our lips will ever tell. James put it this way, how can you say you love God who you don't see, but you don't love those right next to you who you see every day, right? The scripture tells us that. And so we're called to a life of love and care for God and for those around us who are image bearers. Let me close with this. It's a great woman of God who lived in the late 19th and early 20th, early 20th century named Annie Johnson Flint. And she was a hymn writer and she wrote many poems and uh, she was a woman whose life, uh, who went through many hardships and trials and yet pronounced the goodness of God at every turn. When Annie was three years old, her mother died. A few years later after that, her father died, so she was an orphan. But God blessed her, and a couple came in and adopted her. But in her mid-teens, that couple, both the husband and the wife, also died. So here she was in her teens, and she's twice an orphan. She gets into her 20s, and her body begins to be riddled with rheumatoid arthritis, in such a way that all her joints in her hands and legs are becoming swollen and that she can't do anything without great pain and difficulty. 
that disease progresses and then she loses the control of her bowels and of her, her bladder. She's incontinent for the rest of her life. And the biographer of her who wrote uh, her biography says that as she got older, her body was covered from head to toe with sores and with boils. Would you call that tribulation? I would call that big tribulation, difficult tribulation. It almost sounds Jobish, right? This woman went through it, and yet she writes these words. He giveth more grace when the burdens go, grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have entrusted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. She says, fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resource to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. And listen to this last verse. She says, his love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of the infinite riches of Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. God has given you everything you will ever need to fulfill his will in your life. And brother and sister, that is success. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the infinite provision that we have as men and as women who have known Christ that you have set up everything in such a way, even the afflictions that we wish would not come, Lord, because of your perfect will and your insight and wisdom, even those things, which many of which are evil and bad in themselves, will cause us to grow strong, will cause us to be men and women who put their hope in God and God alone. Father God, we thank you for all the provision that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Be with us now, strengthen us now, and glorify your name in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.